all, and welcome back to Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio. I'm your host, Lacey Dunn, future registered dietitian here to spread the scientific knowledge in the world of fitness and nutrition. Today, I have guest Brandon Roberts on board, and I am so excited for it. So get ready to learn, and let's get started. Okay, y'all, so today we have Brandon Roberts on board, ready to talk about a multitude of things with muscle hypertrophy and then protein. So let's get started. Brandon, why don't you tell my listeners who you are, what you do, and a little bit of a background about yourself. Okay, so first thing, thanks for having me on, Lacey. I really appreciate it. Um, A little bit of background is I am currently at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I study muscle hypertrophy and kind of the responder heterogeneity, which we'll get into later. Um, I also coach, and I have a very small roster of athletes, um, but I coach powerlifters, bodybuilders, and one or two gen pop type um, clients. And so I also write a little bit. Um, so basically I do a little, a little bit of everything. I, I like to mix it up and uh, keep life interesting. So um, yeah, that's that's basically it, yeah. Awesome. What got you started into this field and made you want to go get your PhD? Um, so as an undergrad, I was I kind of did a lot of molecular biology and I was really interested in fitness. And so those kind of just combined and I was like, well, you know, how do I grow muscle the best way? Am I doing this right? Um, turns out I, I wasn't. But, you know, there, there's, a, there's a learning curve. Yeah, um, I feel you there. Um, so, you know, one thing led to another, I did a master's in kind of ex-phys, your typical human performance type stuff. Um, started training during that period, kind of cut my teeth on the, on the floor for four or five years. And then when I got this new job in Birmingham, I realized that I, I don't have time to train people in person Mm -hmm. anymore. So I was like, well, let me try online coaching out. So I tried it out for a few years, kind of at the tail end of my PhD. Um, and then last year, a little bit over a year ago, I joined the Strength Guys, um, which is uh, kind of a team of coaches. Um, and that really allowed me to you know, have athletes come to me where I just coach and I don't have to deal with um, payments or social media as much. And so, you know, just the, the coaching is what I wanted. And that's what I've yeah. been able to do, really. Yeah, that's great. And I've heard fantastic things about the strength guys. I know they put out a lot of helpful resources and information. So that's really great. And I know it's definitely not easy to do in-person training. So the growth of online training is something I personally love as well. Yeah, definitely. It's quite amazing, just to comment on that real quick, it's quite amazing how it's taken off. And I don't think it's only going to get more, you know, more specific, more um, in tune with the normal population. So, yeah. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so let's go on today's topic. And let's first talk about the principles of muscle growth. So can you kind of describe, so we all know we have training, volume, frequency, and intensity. So let's dive into those and what you have seen in regards to the research you have helped with. Um, yeah, so we know basically now that volume, total volume kind of drives hypertrophy. Um, and so 
there's a there's the diminishing returns essentially but mm-hmm. one one at set is not as good as two sets is not as good as three and then we get to like four to six sets a week and the research kind of stops um but we know that you know six sets is better than um, so if we know volume drives hypertrophy, well, why can't we just do all our volume on one day, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that's what people do in college and high school, especially is they have the typical bodybuilding split and it works to an extent, right? So you do chest Monday, um, back Tuesday, and then shoulders and arms and legs and stuff. Uh, but it's not necessarily kind of optimal because, you know, once you get to that, 12th set on chest day you're basically kind of at the peak of you know you're not getting anything from it necessarily and you're Mm -hmm. fatigued um and so you increase risk of injury and all this other stuff kind of goes on um so basically if we take that old school thought and we say all right well now we know um the research says two times a week is better and this is based on kind of the muscle protein synthesis response and we'll get into that a little bit later i think Mm -hmm. Um, so we say, all right, let's do upper body twice a week and double our volume. Maybe not double it essentially, but increase it a significant amount. Now you have two responses and the body has to adapt. Um, so we're kind of at a, a crossroads now, um, of how much frequency is optimal. Like, do we say, if I did a little bit of volume every day, is that better than a medium amount of volume two or three times a week? And I think there's a couple papers in review actually now um, that should shed some light on that a little bit. Um, and from what I've heard kind of with, through Schoenfeld and social media is that it looks like maybe f- more frequency with a manageable volume might be better. Um, so we're looking at maybe four three to four days a week, um, hitting, you know, one muscle group. But, uh, ultimately it's about how you can recover, right? Yeah. So if you can't so recover, you, you're going to just not have those gains coming. Right. Right. So, and, um, you know, you can, there's all kinds of other stressors in life and it's not just about training. You got to work, worry about school and work and relationships and all this yeah. stuff and all that kind of impacts your recovery um so in terms of volume and frequency more is better we're not sure how much is the perfect amount per se we might know soon um the biggest thing and so what i what i try to do is i try to set up my athletes based on scientific principles and i say okay can you actually handle that um and the biggest difference is usually the recovery Mm -hmm. right so maybe well, legs three days a week, but I, I know I can't, right? Yeah, um, I'm the exact same. I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially with the, the power lifters, you know, ha- asking someone to deadlift three times a week is pretty insane. But, you know, for a short amount of time, I have some athletes who love it. Um, and, and some like, no, don't make me do that, please. Please don't. Uh, so let's see. Intensity is kind of another... Not, it's not as tricky. It's been pretty um, kind of figured out in the past couple of years, uh, and that was with Stu Phillips showed that if you equate volume, right? So we know volume's the most important thing. If you equate it, thirty uh, percent of one RM versus eighty percent one RM, you get the same muscle growth 
or something. Um, so that says, well, maybe intensity for growth doesn't matter as much, but, but for some, right? Um, so for the bodybuilders, I tend to kind of hit different rep ranges just to A, keep it interesting, and B, it's easier to find progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I'm looking for is I'm looking for that, you know, month to month, are we increasing the load or maybe it forms a little bit better? Um, so that's kind of the uh, the basics of muscle growth, I think. Did I miss anything there? Thank you so much for describing that. Um, another thing I wanted to just touch on was muscle fibers so are different type one and type two so do you think that could also play a role into stimulating hypertrophy and the mm. reasoning for doing both high reps and low reps in training um so what i see and this is this is a, a bit of a controversial topic is you can't necessarily stimulate specific fibers with specific rep ranges mm-hmm. um and all of the fibers hypertrophy the type 2 hypertrophy a little more generally um but you also see it kind of a switch because there's two types of type 2 fibers there's x and a and all of the x basically transition into a more efficient form which is just type 2a fibers um so i don't know that there's really enough to say um one hypertrophies more than the other. I know a few people are actually looking into that now. Um, so hopefully we'll get some ideas in the next couple years, I think. Um, so yeah, I would say there's not quite enough data to say anything yet. Okay. Yeah. I just find it super interesting that, you know, we all have these different biomechanics and possibly Mm -hmm. different types and amounts of muscle fibers that could influence the best training methods for us. Mm-hmm. So hopefully there'll be more data coming out and ways to yeah. apply. Right. And and if you look at the elite athletes, um, especially specifically the sprinters, right, that's the easiest comparison, or the endurance runners, they have a just a genetic predisposition to have either more fast-type fibers or maybe more slow-type fibers. And you get some transition with extreme training, but the normal person... I don't know how much, you know, you see transition, but I don't know how much we can hypertrophy a specific type of fiber. Yeah. Okay, well, let's go into muscle protein synthesis. So first, I wanted to talk and dive into how best to stimulate this. So we all know eating protein is essential for us to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, and there is controversies on how best to do that, whether to spread out throughout the day, how much to eat. So do you mind talking and telling my listeners what you think? Um, Yeah. So uh, I guess we should start and kind of define muscle protein synthesis. That might be a good little um, indicator. I'm sure your listeners, you know, know what it is, but um, so muscle protein synthesis is basically adding amino acids, Right, we get amino acids from food, mainly protein. Um, the research kind of indicates that, you know, 20 grams of protein will stimulate muscle protein synthesis to a near maximal effect. Right, if you're if you think of maximal is 100%, I think it's like 80%. 
And if you add 20 more grams, or you're looking at 40 grams now, um, you get that 10 to 20% increase. But, you know, I would say, especially for, for females, if you're hitting 20 grams per meal and you're doing maybe four to five meals a day, you're probably sufficient. Um, and of course your overall protein intake matters too. But, uh, as far as kind of throughout the day, 40 grams, you know, four or five times a day, you're probably going to get the most bang for your buck. Yeah. Allowing those rises and falls to how to occur. Um, and I know a lot of people, you know, they will think that they need to drink branched chain amino acids all day long and don't realize that that creates problems in those dips and those highs of that muscle protein synthesis. Um, another thing I wanted to hit on and just mention would be digestibility of protein and making sure to have readily bioavailable protein sources in your diet. So, you know, those animal sources would typically be better than those plant-based. So if you're eating a plant-based protein, you typically need more of that in order to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, um, as well as hitting on um, leucine. So making sure to have quality leucine content in your protein. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. Especially, so, and I really like that point. You know, we have um, in the fitness field, there are a lot of vegetarians, right? They eat plant-based foods. And it's not that those are um, worse for your health. It's just that you got to eat a lot more of them to get that leucine threshold. Yeah. Um, so, you know, having you know, a small piece of meat might be easier now, when we look at uh, the leucine trigger, um, and I've, I've used this kind of comparison before, and I don't know if it makes sense, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try for, <laughs> you for your listeners. Ahead. Um, so, if we think of protein, like your basal protein, as the electricity in your house, right? Leucine is the switch that allows muscle protein synthesis to kind of occur. And it's on a bit of a dimmer switch, right? Because you can you can hit you know two grams of leucine and get a very good um, MPS boost, but the maximum seems to be about three to three point five grams per meal. Um, so that's the kind of the goal: is to flip that switch all the way up, mm -hmm. and so you can hit the hit the lights on essentially. Oh, I love that! Yeah, so you don't want to be you know halfway there. And have a mm -hmm. not a light come on. So I right. think that's something that like vegetarians and vegans who are lifters definitely need mm -hmm. to account for and watch for. And that's not saying that being vegetarian or vegan is not going to help you reach your fitness and your physique goals. But it's just something to keep in mind to be very wary when choosing your dietary sources of protein. Yeah, definitely. So I would, I would say you're spot on there. Um, and that is important to point out to people, you know, that it's, it's not like you're doomed. <laughs> yeah. Now, another thing that I wanted to hit on was the fact that just because you're stimulating muscle protein synthesis does not mean that you're stimulating hypertrophy and muscle growth. So what, how can you best describe that for my listeners? Okay. So if you think about a meal, right? So you have your, your 30, 40 grams of protein, muscle protein synthesis elevates for um, three hours kind of peaks. And then 
it comes back down. Um, but just because we're stimulating it doesn't necessarily mean that we're growing muscle. In fact, if you look at the earlier research, and this isn't that old, but so in 2014 they had this study. Um, I think it was from Stu Phillips' lab. It might have been from the other protein researcher, who is Luke Van Loon. But they basically said, all right, we're going we're gonna to measure MPS and these untrained people, and we're going to see if it correlates to hypertrophy, right? So that's a, that's a really good test, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, they found that it didn't correlate. And everybody kind of, especially in social media, jumped on it and said, see, you know, MPS, not that great of a marker. Um, but these were untrained people. And we know that the repeated bout effect says that, you know, you adapt to kind of that first stimulus and your, your body or your muscle adapts and doesn't take as a severe stimulus the next time. So what was happening, and they kind of went on to do this a uh, couple more experiments to show that initial response in those untrained people is mainly muscle damage, right? So it's just repairing that Mm -hmm. um, injury that occurs during their first training. If you think back to when, like, you or I started first training, we were kind of sore and we were kind of beat up for a while. Oh, I felt like I was dying. (laughs) I still feel like I'm always dying. Yeah, no, right? After some some leg days are rough. Oh, God, Um, yeah. So they went on and they did some more studies and some other labs kind of came in and uh, cleaned it up a little bit to say, you know, if we look at longer term and in maybe trained subjects, once they get over that initial um, injury response, we'll call it, it correlates quite well. Is I think it was like a 0.7 R. Um, so that you know, kind of says, well, if you're hitting your leucine threshold and you're getting your protein and you're exercising, you will hypertrophy. It's just that um, NPS may not have been, and, you know, I we don't do um, muscle protein synthesis kind of outcome measures. We do um, fiber, muscle fiber biopsies and DEXA and things like that. So mm-hmm. I'm a little bit more, more biased towards those. Like I like them better because it's like actual like muscle. Um, yeah. but you know, it's a really good, uh, surrogate mark- marker. It's a really good way to do a short, um, kind of study and say, Hey, NPS is up. That correlates later with, um, you know, hypertrophy. There we go. So well, thank you. Now, what about mTOR? I know uh, there's a couple researchers going into mTOR and those signalings. Um, yeah, so mTOR is really tricky because that's the kind of molecular um, signal that people look for. Look for mTOR, and then it, it phosphorylates a couple proteins downstream. Um but the problem with mTOR, and the reason we kind of get are getting away from it, is it's very timing specific. Um, if you don't take your measure, so your muscle biopsy to do your uh, protein, like three hours or one to three hours after training, it can show all kinds of weird stuff. And and I actually presented some data at a conference um, last year. And, you know, these scientists come up and they're like, well, what's, what's up with your mTOR? And I'm like, well, our biopsies were 48 hours after our training. And they're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Ah. Um, yeah, so in the context of 
kind of interpreting science, it's all, you know, it depends, right? When did you take the biopsy? When did yeah. you exercise? When did you eat? You know, so um, it's, it's, again, a really good surrogate, but maybe not if we're ultimately concerned about muscle size. Maybe it's not the best, um, but we still do it too, so. Okay, that's very interesting, and that's something to keep in mind, especially when you're reading research studies that quote an mTOR conclusion or something, or really it's important to always read studies, but can't always do that because you don't have access, unfortunately, but very good to know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now let's talk about non-responders. I have always been interested and I listened to your um, your podcast with, I think it was Guru Performance, about mm-hmm. you talking about non-responders. So let's hit on that, what you saw, and yeah, let's just go- dive into it. Um, okay, so one of the reasons I'm at, I've been working in the lab that I'm in now is because of non-responders specifically. Uh, so if you think about training, everybody always says, Exercise is good for you, and it is really, really good for you. We know that. Um, But in a subset of people, and this happens, I'm seeing it more and more in data sets. In a subset of people, they don't necessarily respond via muscle growth, so hypertrophy, like we were talking about, um, as well as others. Um, and in fact, some people, which is, this is kind of terrifying, um, but some people actually lose muscle uh, wow. when they start training. Yeah. And, and if you look at our, we uh, we have a paper that was just published. Um, if you look at our frequency diagram, so it basically just graphs kind of each person, uh, you can see this robust response in some people, which we call extreme or hyper responders. You have that moderate kind of middle normal response. And then you have these low, poor, or negative responders, whatever you want to, non-responders, whatever you want to call them. Um, and so this was, I was like, what? That doesn't, like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I've never seen that in real life, right? Um, but I started thinking back to when I was training, and I think that I actually had one, or I knew one person who was a non-responder. He would work out like five or six days a week. He would eat all the protein. He like he did really well, but he would never grow. And this happened over like like I watched him over like three years in college. Um, so they definitely exist in terms of hypertrophy. Now, the non-responders usually they get stronger, and they have you know all the other nice health outcomes, the heart rate, the blood pressure, all that stuff is you know still healthy outcomes, but they just don't grow muscle. Um, so the other kind of, uh, thing, if you look in our literature is mostly it's found in older people. And we, then we have that, um, confounder of, well, older people don't respond to training as well as young people. Right. Um, so I just saw some data last week in young people, and this was probably the coolest data set that I've seen in a while. And even in the young people, like, you know, in your, you're in your prime, you're like 20 to 30 year old, you're training, they, they did a very robust stimulus. Um, I think it was like 12 weeks, um, 30 sets or something total okay. per week. Yeah. Um, and it's in review. We actually, I'm, re- I'm reviewing the paper now. Um, but 
they found that you know twenty percent of their people still didn't respond, and they're young. Um, wow. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. I have some ideas. Um, but have you ever kind of seen someone like not respond in your kind of experience at all? Yeah, I've actually had, I have had one client who had worked with me for like a full year and we just could not get her to grow. Mm -hmm. I kept pushing food. We kept pushing food and changing the workouts, had her send me, you know, the weights every single week to see how they were progressing. She was getting stronger, but I mean, and she was growing a little bit, but just not to the point where like you, you would have thought she would be growing. She was getting stronger, but just not a lot of muscle growth happening. So it's really interesting to see that happen and frustrating, I bet for the person for sure. Oh yeah. And it makes me question what are the potential causes of that? Genetics? Yeah, so we have um, kind of, I just hit on one of the, uh, on a uh, fellowship, luckily, to study what's happening. Um, and the, the first thought was, well, maybe they're taking it as an insult and not adapting. And then so we looked at um, kind of some older papers, and I dug through the literature a bit, and it looks like the, um, the inflammation – seems to be not like it's not good for these people and i don't know what happens exactly but for some reason they just can't handle it it's like the normal inflammation that occurs and you kind of adapt um with these non-responders they just are almost hyper inflamed um which we know you know does not which can cause protein catabolism we know right exactly and if you look at any diseases you know and in people who are kind of inflamed um they are losing muscle so Uh that kind of makes sense um so i think that's where we are now i actually i have some cells going now that should help me kind of figure out what's going on a little bit um hopefully that'll give me some decent data but that's yeah that's my my hypothesis is that you know they can't handle the inflammation um so they don't grow okay and I would be interested to see, you know, if they just fail to adapt as well, which is correlates with that. But, yeah, highly interesting and highly frustrating for those individuals, <laughs> for sure. Were there any markers that were off for those individuals that were different than the responders? Yeah, so what we normally see is we, we call them like, or I call them the standard six. Um, and so you, you've probably heard of TNF alpha, uh-huh. IL six. Um, the one I'm really looking into is called tweak. So it's a TNF alpha family member. Um, okay. so all of these, uh, cytokines and their receptors, because it might be that, you know, they're not increased in the blood. The cytokines aren't, but the receptor levels are increased. So that means that if there is a little bit in the blood, it'll bind better um, and cause more of a, a stimulus on the inflammatory side. Um, so those are the TNF alpha tweak and IL six with their respective receptors are the six genes and proteins that we're looking at to kind of see if maybe those are important because there's a, a good bit of data supporting that um, 
they are elevated in kind of these atrophy or disease conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's where where we're going to start. Highly interesting. And then for those non-responders, it would be interesting as well to see if those – like pharmacological agents could benefit them just like they do for like cancer patients. Now, of course, that's like a really, really fine line to walk, but it'd be interesting to see how different things could help those people. Yeah, and and, and right now we're doing a study where we give um, metformin, which is a, a type 2 diabetes drug. It's yeah. pretty commonly prescribed. Um, and in fact, uh, some bodybuilders use it for kind of the nutrient partitioning effect of it. Scarily do, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, we're giving it to these older adults who are also strength training, and, and it's, it serves also as an anti-inflammatory to some extent. Um, so we're seeing if maybe that can help them, people A, respond better, or B, just prevent people from you know not losing muscle or not gaining anything, anything at all. Um, and I have that data <laughs> on my desktop. It is blinded right now, which is super frustrating. So I have like A, A groups and B groups, and one of them changed. And so I'm thinking that that was the metformin group, but I don't really know. Uh, so we will be unblinded in December, and then I'll be able to say, hey, you know, metformin seems to work, or uh, back to the drawing board. Um, <laughs> You're like, and I really want to know what it is right now. Yeah, yeah. Every every week I have a meeting with um, Dr. Bauman, my my advisor, and I'm like, so can we just unblind, a, you know, just just for fun, just a quick peek. And he's <laughs> just like, no, a quick no. peek, like five <laughs> seconds. Yeah. yeah, he's like, no, no, you can't do that. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to go do some more data. Oh, that um, would kill me. I would be like pulling my hair out, trying to figure it out. Yeah, definitely. It's It's been a... Um, test of my patients, but you know, we'll get it eventually. And I've got plenty to do in the meantime. So. Oh yeah, I bet. Now, do you want to dive into any other of your recent research findings that maybe could be helpful for my listeners or just are super interesting and awesome for you to talk about? Um, so we have, and, and I'm not kind of head on this project, but I, I'm, I did work a little bit on it. One of the diseases that we work with is Parkinson's. Okay. And um, so in Parkinson's patients, we see this grouping of type 1 fibers, uh, which is really, really weird. And I'm not sure why it happens, but it seems like the muscle's adapting by kind of re-innervating. So like denervating, so you lose the nerve and then you re-innervate. Um, oh, God. That sounds really yeah. like I don't know why it sounds painful. Well, um, yeah, I never thought of it that way, but that's that's true. I don't I don't think they can feel it, but if they could, it would be pretty bad. Um, but so we're looking at I was looking at these muscle and I and I noticed all of these type one fibers are just clustering together. Um, and so there's something there, and I think you know we talked about muscle fiber types early a little little bit, but they. Um, they seem to to have a better outcome like in strength and just exercise in general after they group these fibers together, um, which is kind of neat. I, I don't know if that's important at all, but I, you mm-hmm. know, it's kind of fun to think about. Yeah, 
It really is. I just love science, and there's just so much that you could find out. But then the hard thing, which a lot of people don't realize, is that it's really hard to do research studies. There's so many different factors and that you can't control that you want to control. So I definitely think one of the biggest things that anybody who is interested in training and nutrition, if they're reading research studies, is to learn how people conduct research and how to read research. Because I know even for me as a master's student, it's intense and confusing. Right. And, And honestly, you have to read research for a really long time to see the nuances. I don't, I mean, I'm still, I still, every time I read a paper, I'm learning something. Um, but you know, once you kind of get it down and you have to commit a lot of time, I mean, like I'm do we have a journal club and I'm presenting two papers and I've had to read these papers like three or four times each. And it's been, you know, an hour per read just oh, to goodness. dig into it. Yeah. And so it's a big time commitment. Um, and plus if you're not like a scientist, it's even harder because you don't have that background knowledge that you need. Um, which is one thing I'm really happy to see is people like yourself and, um, like these people who are really spreading the science and interpreting it and kind of converting it into something people can understand. Um, that's really, really important because like not everybody has the time or the knowledge to read the research and say, Oh, this totally means that. So, um, yeah, I I agree. And it makes it frustrating. Yeah, definitely. And then you also have like the popular media, which just mostly gets things wrong. Um, oh, those, kind of, um, have you seen those infographics that are all over Instagram and Facebook? Yeah. Yeah. Some of them are, can be misinterpreting things to a huge extent. So, oh, yeah. And that's, infographics are really hard. And I don't, I'm not a huge fan of them. Like I, other people can do them well. I've never really gotten into them because if you look at all my articles, they're pretty long because there's so many nuances, right? It's mm-hmm. like we're, we're writing this article now on um, the ketogenic diet. And Ooh. it's got, yeah, there's, I think there's like 10 authors on it. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's, it's not a publication. It's just going to be on scifit.net. But we've been doing it for like four months. Um, and to really dig into the kind of like the keto literature, we, we all had to read, you know, probably 100 papers before we could write the, the, you know, the article. And it's, it's like 10,000 words or something. It's got lots of graphs. I didn't do that part. But um, <laughs> I'm not graphically inclined. Um, no, I'm not either. <laughs> I would be like, I'm going to write. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's basically what I do. Um, I leave the other stuff to the the better people. Um, but I was kind of in charge of the performance literature of the keto, and it's just like, well, you know, you're trying to interpret this literature, and nothing's equated. Protein's not equated. Exercise isn't accounted for. These people, you know, there's all this stuff that just happens. Yeah. Um, and that's part of interpreting science, right? Um, so it can be very difficult. Yeah, when does that come out? I am excited for that. <laughs> um, I have no idea. It's like I said, it's been a long project, and Adam uh, Sir is kind of the head on it, 
and so it'll be on his website. And he is very, very good at writing and making sure everything, all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Um, so hopefully soon. <laughs> Yay. Um, well, I hope so because that is definitely a hot topic nowadays. For yeah. And that's, that's what we kind of, we kind of were aiming for is, you know, hot topics, but, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the other interesting part about what I, what I get to do in my spare time is just write about stuff. Yeah, that's fun. Now, do you personally like to write? Uh, I do like to write if I'm in the right mood. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I get that. That's me too. Yeah. And if I'm in the right mood, I'm going to, I'm going to write something very, like I'm going to bang it out basically. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I started writing for my, myself, honestly, and I still write mostly for myself just to learn. It's a good way to make sure you know what you're talking about. Um, but I, would agree I do. It, it brings, it collects all that information in your head and lets you then fully understand and be, a, be able to apply things. Yeah, definitely. So I, I encourage people to write, but nowadays you don't have to be a good writer. You can do podcasts, you can do Instagram, you can do YouTube, you know, there's so many venues to kind of learn and get the info out, which is mm -hmm. awesome. Um, but I, I just stick to writing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there, is there any other information like your key lifting techniques or your key, um, not, well, secrets not that aren't mm -hmm. really secrets for my listeners to know um yeah and this is this is a bit bias and it's kind of um more for us but there's a lot of literature just science that shows having a good coach goes a long way it does um, that's huge yeah and i even like i have a coach um my coach is uh, Jeff Alberts with 3DMJ. Oh, he's great. Yeah, and I, I love him to death. Um, and I've been with him for like almost a year and a half now. But it's like if you invest in a coach, you will reap the rewards like 10 times over. Mm -hmm. um, and not just in training, but like just having someone to talk to like and stress just kind of dissipates. You can you – can, Depending on the coach, obviously, you can get, like, life advice. Um, a lot of my athletes are in college or grad school, and they'll be like, hey, what do you think about this? Or will you look over my personal statement? Or, you know, will you teach me this thing? And I'm like, yeah, let's let's go. Go for it. Um, so I, I'd say having a good coach goes a really, really, really long way. Yes, I would agree because it ends up not – just being, you know, a trainer. You don't just want a trainer who's going to tell you what to do. You want a mm -hmm. coach who's going to be there for you physically, mentally, who's going to help walk you through the steps and tell you why and oh, encourage yeah, you along the way. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so hopefully, I mean, and I know there's a lot of good coaches out there. So you don't have to, I'm not just saying like, come to me. I'm just saying like, Find your own little niche. Find your coach and uh, let them let them help you. Yeah, I have um, some ideas to help develop, um, kind of like a way for people to find the coach that would best fit them. So I'm Ooh. hoping to get that underway somehow. Um, but that okay. that's going to take a lot of personality work and method work, and but 
I feel like that yeah. will help, and there there's kind of a hole in the fitness industry with that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and and I've talked to a few people about that, but nobody has kind of um, wanted to put in the effort to do something uh, because you're right, it takes a, a ton of work. Um, but I think that would be like not like a ma- almost like a matchmaker site, right? Yeah, um, exactly. But- so something along those lines would be pretty clutch for the industry as a whole, um, as long as you were you did it the right way. But yeah. I don't think it would hurt, you know. So I'm probably gonna shoot myself in the foot for saying that idea out loud, but <laughs> oh, that's okay. It, I, I think if you really wanted to do it, you could you could probably pull it off. I hope so. Well, I just want to thank you so much again for taking your time to come on my podcast, for sharing your knowledge, sharing your research and your ideas, as well as your personal experiences. So thank you so much. And if you want to tell my listeners how they can reach you, how they can find you, your research, your information, get coaching from you, that would be fantastic because hands down, you are up to date in the literature, the science, you know what you're doing. So I feel confident in telling my listeners to come to you. Um, okay. So our website is thestrengthguys.com. I have a personal website for, for fun, basically. It's uh, fitnessandphysiology.com. And then social media is usually brob21 uh facebook is probably the best way to kind of find me um I, put, I try to put a lot of content on just status updates mm-hmm. um so yeah one of those three things you could kind of email me also you know if your listeners ever have any questions just shoot me a, a message or something i don't i don't mind you know helping people out too oh that's so nice okay i have one more question for you okay you ready yeah. Who are your top three favorite researchers? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, okay, so I'm going to be somewhat diverse, maybe not that diverse at all. Um, I really, really like uh, Eric Helms, and he's probably, you know, pretty famous. But yeah, he I does, would say so. <laughs> he, yeah, I, he, he, uh, um, he does a lot of good, various research. Um, I also am partial to Brad Schoenfeld because he does the hypertrophy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, probably one of the lesser known people that I really like is Abby Smith Ryan out of, um, UNC Chapel Hill. Um, her students are Eric Trexler and Greg Knuckles now. And she ha she seems to, I've only talked to her like once, but, she seems to be amazing as a person. So um, those are probably my top three. Um, yeah. Wow. Well, I'm going to have to go find her because I've never heard of her. I've heard of um, Eric and Greg, but never heard of her. So thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No problem. And um, one more thing. If you have any one piece of advice for anybody who is wanting to dive into um, research regarding muscles or – Protein synthesis, what is your biggest piece of advice? Um, my main advice would be to first read kind of um, layman type articles. So Nutrition Tactics has good articles. Uh, Stronger by Science has good articles. Um, and then after you kind of find a, how to interpret it, maybe dig into the primary research is what we call it um, to see the details and start figuring those out. And if you get the 
the same interpretation from the, the main research as the people who um, be reading that translate it, that's probably a good thing. Although you might even find some nuances where you don't necessarily agree. So that's, that would be my kind of um, insight into that. Highly interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again for taking your time to come on here. And um, I hope you have a fantastic day. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me on, Lacey. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye.